enjoyed the study of Hosea as we have walked through it thus far. And uh, tonight I want to I spread the depth of what we're talking about over tonight and next week. And tonight I'm laying down a foundation to parallel something in the New Testament to bring us to what we're going to be talking about, which is the door of hope, which literally surrounds itself around a, a, a place called Achor. And we'll talk about that in a second, but let's, let's read from Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. That's interesting. I think it's the only time, really, in, in the Bible that the word is, is actually used, and, and, and that is allure. It's a, it's a very significant word, honestly. It says, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly or gently to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor, as a door of hope. Now the word again, achor, in Hebrew means trouble. And, and, and I mean dark trouble. Not, not just a little bit. Not just frustration. You're talking gloomy trouble here. And, and it goes on to say, And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day that she came up from the land of Egypt. Come out in that day that you will call me on the telephone, and I'll answer it sooner or later. But no, it says that you will call me Ishai. Ishai means husband, okay? And no longer call me Bailey, which means master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by name no more. Our sound man is interrupting our sound. Anyways, I, I want you just to hold those scriptures in mind. We'll, we'll be getting back to them and really taking a solid look next week as well. But let's face it, the, these scriptures, as we've gone through it, and if you've read this little book of Hosea, it's, you know, the language that is used is rough language. And we, we've seen this, and if this is, you know, if somebody's tuning in and, and this is your first session for you out of this, what we did is we, again, we looked at a woman called Gomer who was the wife of Hosea. She was a temple prostitute. That's the crazy thing. She was immersed in Baal worship, which means Baal, just, just, just as, again, it means master, but master in the sense that, hey, you're the slave, and, and, and you got the slave on the, and, and the master. That, that was the idea that Baal carried with it. Now, what we saw in the weeks past is in the Greek language, it's the word love. But it's the word love that's been distorted. Again, it's been twisted, and it actually is the same love that I would compare that are on the streets today here in our society and world. When, when the average Westerner, when the average American says the word love, that's what they mean. And the Greek word is again, is eros. It means 
I want now, and I want for myself the, the highest, again, the best, the most beautiful. And, and therefore, as a result, I reject the less and the least and the ugly. That's basically how we understand love. That, that was the basis. That, that spirit ran through Baal. And again, she was a prostitute within the temple and as a result lived to herself to become the highest, to become the best, the most beautiful in order to please Baal. You got to please that. That's the whole point with Eros. It gets into our religion and we make God in the image of Eros. That's exactly what we do because we say we must please him. We must be for him, the highest, the best. And what it becomes is a performance. It, it becomes something that we try to achieve and, and, and complete. And, and as many of our friends would say as well, you know, I hear it all the time, God is too holy to look like sin. I mean, okay, absolutely. But that means he's eros. He cannot look at sin, and incidentally, to me, that's one of the, the biggest miserable mistranslations, misquotations that, that's ever been on anybody's lips. But that's another thing. God, God looks on evil, friends. Believe me, he looks on, on evil. He, he joined us in it, and, 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 and he became sin. Uh, and again, that's another story, but th this this was not just a simple, I mean, the people of Israel at this time, it wasn't a, a simple religion of Eros, because what they had done is that they had mixed the worship of Yahweh, which is the Old Testament name for God, with Eros. So, so they took the beautiful face of God and, and mixed it and twisted it and distorted it into the image of Eros, Baal. Now, again, we have Hosea, who is the great, we've been telling you this, the great image of God. In fact, the name Hosea in the Old Testament was another way of saying Jesus. So Hosea is sent by the Lord. Again, God tells Hosea to go into the temple prostitutes to call this woman to be his wife. And even as God says, I have, you remember, I have entered into the darkness and laid hold upon Israel to become what? My wife. So the story goes, Israel walked away from God again and again and again. But of course, Gomer did the same thing. She was always running off to other lovers. I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you this was all about, you know, a, a sexuality, but it's not. Again, she's trying to please Baal. She's in that entrenched eros aspect. And out of this story comes this book. This is what has, I believe, questioned and confused a lot of people. It's, it's when I read what is here in terms of this. What's, what's going to happen to Gomer? And, and, and as I said, it, it's a raw language. You'll, you'll be stripped. You'll be abandoned. You'll, you'll be going up dead ends, basically, and circled by, I mean, 
you get into some of the language and really get down into the language, it, it's horrible language. It's, it's the loss of everything. You say, you know, hopeless. It's, it's living in dead ends and in despair. But this is even more confusing. Just before he will say stuff like that, there's these magnificent promises of what love will achieve and, sh and how she's going to be transformed. And, and, and when he finishes those hideous statements, it goes into what we just read. This day of trouble, Acor, for you is really a door of hope. And I'm taking you into the wilderness to speak quietly and kindly. So what is it all about? Well, first, let me just lay this out tonight. Because if you go into the New Testament, you will find all the answers and uh, to the questions that are asked in the Old Testament. To read the Old Testament as the Old Testament, it's going to confuse you, okay? It's, it's a book of unfinishedness is what I call it. It asks a lot of questions. It, it looks, it sees, it it prophesies, but it doesn't know where they're it, it doesn't know where they're going. It's only when Jesus came that he ties it together. And if you remember the first words after he rose from the dead, he said, The whole entire Old Testament is about me. So this is this is something I've done in, in the way I, I kind of spin things and look at things. I've realized that in the Old Testament, what may be a chief character of the, of the New Testament outside of Jesus is Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. I, I have realized that what happened to Gomer in her relationship to Hosea is exactly what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Only the language used in, in, in Saul of Tarsus, uh, well, let me just put it this way. I think maybe we can better understand it. But so, so, so let me, I hope it makes it a little plainer to you as I walk through this. Saul, and I mean seriously, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. Now, honestly, the Pharisees became in many respects, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic here, please, but in many respects, the Pharisees then looked like many evangelicals today. And I don't say that harmfully, it's just a simple fact. But what was a Pharisee? It was the same atmosphere, if I can put it this way, as Gomer. Only it's been updated. Baal, again, can have a zillion different faces. Eros can express itself under any situation. What it does is it constantly changes its face and when I come to the Pharisee, it's the same eros Baal mixture. It's the mixture of law, a, a law that God gave. It, it's, it's a beautiful law, which is a, a law that if you dig just below the surface of it, it's the law of saying love, agape love, God's love. And for us to act in love one towards another. 
But the Pharisees took that beautiful law and they mixed it with eros. And so what was meant to be a, a revelation of the love of God within this nation, this society, became a black hole of, of what I call self-sucking in everything, into itself, all about me, believing that Yahweh was eros. So, okay, fine, Pastor, you're saying all that, but what does that mean? Well, if the Pharisee God was Eros, what does that do? It changes things, friend. I, I hope you know you've been here over these last. Those of you who've been here over the past number of weeks are, are getting this to see God through the distortion in the darkness of Eros. It will change everything I believe about my acceptance of God. If God. Is, is is here, Eros, then he does not want to really know you. And, and if, if you're the last or you're the least and the unimportant and the unrecognized, obviously, and the, and the, and the ugly, so, you know, get out of here. You know, how often have you heard the statement, most people don't reject Christ, they reject the, which is a, House of Eros, in so well. Anyway, uh, but to punish you, he's going to reject you. That's Eros. He only wants you as obviously the highest or the best and the most beautiful. So that means what? I've got to try to be that, right? I, I suddenly the the whole of salvation now is on my shoulders. I've got to be good enough for this God that 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 would reject me at the drop of a hat if I mess up or do something wrong. They were trying to please this this remote God that had separated himself from us. So I'm trying to get his attention by keeping a multitude of rules and laws and regulations and not not only the law of God but the Pharisees included another 2,000 laws of their own that they thought God should have put there in the first place. So, you know, it says, if Eros says that that is what God is like, you're tormented. You're never living up to. You're always trying to climb that ladder. You're always trying to be good enough and, 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 and so forth and so on. I mean, it's, it's tormenting. I get up in the morning desperately hoping, you know, trying to believe I'll be good enough today because that changes my attitude towards other people as well. Because if God only wants the highest and he only wants the best and obviously the most beautiful, then, then if I'm going to please him, I don't want to be around people who are the last, the least, or the ugly. So I become separated. I am a person who then lives in the cons consciousness of I'm separated from God. I'm, I'm separated from you. I, I've got to be better than you. <laughs> in, in fact, I'm going to use you as a mirror. I, I meet you on Sunday, and I look, and I say, I thank thee, O God. I'm not like her. That's Eros. So I can, I need you so I can feel good about myself. Does that make sense? 
I mean, <laughs> I look at you and tear you down and, and look at you as not, so I can feel good about myself, or at least I don't. Jesus spoke to these people in exactly the same way that God spoke to Gomer. <laughs> he said to these people, these, these Pharisees who, who studied the Scriptures day and night, who tithed, who, who fasted, who prayed. And, and honestly, they were noted especially for their praying in public because they were long prayers, like one of, one of my messages on Sunday morning. They, they were noted for it. I mean, they, they were forever about the temple because it was everything to them. The, the temple, the Jews believed, it was where heaven met earth, or heaven and earth met, I should say. That, that's what they believed. I mean, they literally believed heaven and earth meet here at the temple. The priesthood was everything. These people were fanatics in their devotions. Jesus said to them, he said, you serpents. I mean, you take a look at Matthew 23 sometime and take a look at that whole chapter. I mean, he said it publicly to them. He said, you are of your father, the devil. Oh, man. He said he was a liar from the beginning, and that's why you act the way you act. He, he was a murderer from the beginning, and you would murder me now. Wait, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, Jesus used words on the Pharisees that you would have figured he would have used on the mafia, for Pete's sake. But he does it, and as a result, he turns around, and with the mafia, he has a feast, and they have a great time together. Again, Matthew, he turned these people, the Pharisees, and says, you are like a tomb. He says, you are whitewashed on the outside. You look great, but inside you stink with dead man's bones. Wow. Can you imagine in front of everybody saying stuff like that? You stinkers. I mean, that's not enough. Enough. He, he says with, with all of that, he says, you are like a nest of snakes and vipers. Okay, that's pretty tough language. But at the end of it, he says, with great convulsive sobs. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's speaking to the Pharisees. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. I mean, really, what, what you just said, you, you should have walked off feeling good. You know, I got it ironed out kind of thing with them. But no, it says he wept. And the Greek is, is great convulsive sobs. In fact, the whole chapter of Matthew 23, each sentence begins with this word, woe. Woe to you Pharisees. In, in, in our culture here on, on this side of the hemisphere, when we say woe, it carries a certain pride. I, I'm better than you and woe to you kind of thing. But in the Hebrew Greek, what's going on here, it's a sob, a whoa. And I can hardly express it. The, the, the word doesn't fit in our English languages, to be honest with you. But, but when he said whoa, it, it, was, it was with a sob. It, it's always having compassion. And he's revealing to them 
who they are. He, he said to these Pharisees, guys, you study the scriptures. And, and they did. They literally memorized the entire Old Testament. Try that someday when you don't have anything else to do. He says, you will not come to me, and I'm the subject of the Old Testament. Now, when he said, will not, that, that phrase, that word, has gotten the idea that you know what I say is true, but you have chosen, I will not. So, when you boil it all down, the sin of the Pharisees, which is a religious sin, the sin of distorted face of God and the sin of carrying that through with trying to please God. Wait, I'm, I'm with one of these days. I mean, if, if I'm here long enough, I'm going to give you a study on, on, on the Pharisees. There's seven sects of them. Each one operated in different ways. I mean, there, <laughs> th there was one Pharisee that would keep his head down and, and always walk around like this, never been seen where he's walking into because he didn't want to look upon the Pharisees. It was crazy. I mean, there's, there's so many different things along with this line. But uh, again, you know, Jesus was saying concerning that trying to please God, that that sin is a greater sin than all the outward sins that you would normally think of as a sin. So he sat down and he ate with tax collectors which were very close in their crushing of the people as well. But he's hanging around them as well as with the prostitutes and the drunks. He sat down and, again, he ate with them. That's significant because I've told you over and over, especially when it comes to covenant, eating in those days was a mini covenant. He stood in solidarity with them. They said, Jesus, you've got the wrong people here. You should be with the Pharisees. They, they're, they're the holy people. No, he says, mm -mm, not them. He said the prostitutes, tax collectors, they're going to enter the kingdom of God first. You guys are so far behind. You, you, don't, you hardly even know what's going on. I'll say it again. Saul was an outstanding Pharisee, okay? And, and I mean, what I've just got done describing to you is bad enough, but he was outstanding. In fact, he, he might have been in the crowd, actually, of those Pharisees that Jesus said were of the devil. There, there's a good reason to believe that Saul was in Jerusalem at that time as a student of the great Gamaliel. Years later, when he gives his resume, he said, although I myself have confidence in my flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put their confidence in their flesh, understand, I did more than you. He says, I had total confidence that I, as a Pharisee, was better than anybody else. He said, circumcised. The, 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 sacred of, uh, the sacredness of the nation of Israel. Because the way they looked at circumcision is when you're, when you're born, 
you're a part of the human race. But when you're circumcised, you have now become the chosen people of Israel. So he said, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. If you know your Old Testament, you know your Old Testament history, 10 of the tribes rejected and went by themselves. Benjamin stayed with Judah and the promise and the covenant. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, we spoke the sacred language, you know. At our table, my mother was a Hebrew. My father was a Hebrew. Uh, you know, we, we were the sacred people. We only spoke Arabic. And, and you don't even know what Hebrew is. No, he said, we're the sacred people. Right from a little boy. And then as to the law, I mean, he said, I was a Pharisee. I was so zealous. He, he said, and ended up, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in trying to keep the law, he said, I am blameless. I am Mr. Pharisee. So, I mean, they, they stood up literally. They, these guys would stand up every morning as they got up out of bed. They would raise their right hand and they would say, I thank you, O God, that I am a man. I am not a dog. I am not a woman. I don't want you hitting me. I am a man. And I thank you, O God. I am not as other men. I am a Pharisee. I pray. I fast. I tithe. We laugh at that, but what do we do today? I mean, certainly he, he was, Paul was in Jerusalem after the resurrection. He understands, and, and you've got to understand this, otherwise you have no inkling concerning the behavior of, of, of Saul. He believed the temple explanation of the resurrection, that the, that the disciples had come and stole the body. And he ends up in a, in, in a synagogue in Jerusalem where a guy by the name of Stephen was preaching. And, and Stephen, I love this guy. Man, this guy's brilliant. I, I, I look forward to picking his brain one day. You know what I'm saying? To think Jesus literally had only been raised from the dead a few months. What Stephen was saying, you, you, you can read it in Acts chapter 7. I mean, this guy's nailed it. He's got it straight. He said, you say that the temple is, is where heaven and earth meet. He said, no. God himself has joined me, and in Jesus, heaven and earth meet in him. We don't need the temple anymore. Oh, you know, we, we have come to the ultimate. You have a sacrifice. We have the blood of Jesus. And he goes on and on. And I mean, he's just, and Saul is there. And you got to remember, Saul has a brain. He's no dummy. And he gets what Stephen's saying. So this Jesus cult that says he's risen from the dead, man, if that catches on, it means the end of the temple. It means the end of our keeping the law. It means I'm done. I'm finished. 
So Saul authorizes the stoning of Stephen, which, again, in itself was illegal, by the way. The Romans did not allow the Jews to exercise capital punishment. But, but they were so, so enraged to what Stephen said that they, they well, they break the law. They threw him over a cliff, and, and then they went and got great stones to stone him. Saul, you know, Saul's not going to get his hands dirty with this. So he's the one who said, bring me your clothes. Bring me your clothes. Saul authorized the stoning, and so the men took off their clothes to stone and laid it at the feet of Saul as he watched. In it, you remember Stephen, suddenly his face shone and his hands raised. Remember what he said? He said, I see Jesus what? You're whispering because you're not sure or what? Standing. He was standing at the right. The rest of the New Testament says that Jesus sat at the right hand of God. Now, I can't prove it. All I can do is suggest it, but I suggest it strongly. I believe that he must have gotten up to welcome Stephen home the very first moment. And, and Saul never forgot that. Please understand that. I mean, what are you going to do when, when, when you might never forget something, right? He said, it's the end of me and, and, and the end of everything I believe. And he went like, I mean, the actual Greek here that describes him is, is literally that of a bear who's been robbed of its cubs. Okay, you don't want to get around Mama Bear if her bear, if her cubs have been robbed. Saul's crazy. He saw himself as the savior of Israel because obviously all these morons are believing this stuff. So I've got to save them from this this terrible false doctrine before it comes to a head in this name of Jesus. So. He follows on the heels of Stephen's murder, and it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, I say this, and I, I'm not proud of this, but Eros, I mean, it, Eros in the name of God can murder someone. I mean, I don't know if you've ever studied much of church history, but the church has murdered tens of thousands of people. I'll, gi I'll give you an example of one that you, the name might sound familiar because you know you, you didn't ever want to disagree with John with, with John Calvin from Geneva because he burned you at the stake if you didn't believe what he believed. Would you like a pastor like that? That's Eros. That's er that man was on fire. No, no, no. <laughs> Eros again says, What? I'm the only one, the best. I not only reject. I get rid of anything else. They're not worth anything. So he went through all Jerusalem, and he's arresting anyone who confessed the name of Jesus. He beat them, okay? He beat them in the synagogue with the stripes, as they called them, pieces of iron, pieces of stone, and, and lashing their bodies, saying, you deny Jesus rose from the dead. Deny it. 
deny that Jesus rose from the dead. And they wouldn't. That didn't leave some. Paul gave some sticky words. He remembered Stephen. He remembered every word said. He remembered what happened when they stoned him. And now these believers, they're willing to take a beating and still not deny Jesus. It, it stuck with him, goading him, this, this, this Jesus. Paul going, I, I don't want to talk about it. Getting to me like goads that push a rebellious cattle. And always asking the question, Suppose they're right, but he shed his tears. He was fueled by a fear of losing everything that was in his life. So he ran from Jesus to his lovers, like Hosea and Gomer every time. He showed his love. She ran away to her lover. We see something. But this is so other than what I am. He sees them and what their behavior and what's coming from them. And, and it's just, it's so other than who I am that he runs. The law of God had become his idol. Do you understand that? There was a that was a Pharisee idol. The temple was an idol. Their fasting, their praying, they did it to please a God who didn't exist. This twisted and distorted entity. He, he was saying with pride, I am not as other men. Because no other Pharisee was doing this. Do you realize that? I mean, <laughs> I have to say it, his own teacher, remember Gamaliel said, leave him alone. If it's of God, you don't want to get in the way. If it's not, it'll dissipate, it'll fall away. Saul, his star pupil, went after them. Do you realize the temple was silent? He wasn't saying, they, they, they wouldn't do anything, let them be. But they gave Saul papers, authority. So, so he went to the Gentile world as well. And his first stop, Syria. I, I'm going to understand what is in his mind. I'm going to cleanse the world of the name of Jesus. So on the road to Syria, Damascus to be more specific, Suddenly, I like suddenness. It's a, it's a light that's brighter than the sun. That's bright. And this is the point. I mean, as you look at this, <laughs> within that light that you couldn't look at, there was a human. There was a human being, a, a man standing in the light. There was a voice that, that wrapped itself around him. Saul, Saul. I mean, it almost has the same intonation 
as he's spoken to the Pharisees before, Saul, Saul. I mean, understand, this is not an angry monster. This is not someone who has been mortally offended. Or Saul, that's, that's what it is, Saul. Saul, what are you doing? Why, why are you persecuting me? Now, put yourself in his shoes at that crossing. He's the Savior of Israel, right? That's the way Saul sees himself. I am cleansing the people of God in Jerusalem, in Israel, from this, this imposter Jesus. Now he hears the glory of God. What does that say about him? Am I another Moses? The glory of God comes to me and calls me by my name? Saul, Saul. But then there comes the total confusion. What is a man doing in the middle of the glory of God? And what is all this talk about me persecuting him? I'm doing him a service. And then, and I, I could talk about this forever, the answer that came from the man was this, I am Jesus. Why didn't he say, I'm the Messiah? Because he was. I believe because then Saul would, have, would say, that's great, my buddy the Messiah, that's who I've been looking for. Well, why didn't he say that he was the son of God? He was. Saul, Saul would have been a, a bit confused of those words, but, you know, no. What did he say? He said, I am Jesus, the name that Saul lived to rid the earth of. I am. What? There's no doubt about I mean, there's no doubt who Messiah would be or even the Son of God would be, but he says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. The, the one that he was brutally persecuting, anyone who named that name. He's now standing in, in, in the glory of God, which to a Jew, by the way, meant is God. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. You're you're persecuting God because he was and is God and he rose from the dead and he dealt with sin. So there's no more sacrifice and he dealt with death. He is everything than they've always said. Everything you've been, I mean, everything, like healing. I mean, it's he is that. And you're persecuting him. I'm not sure, but at that point, I, I really think Saul began to shake like a leaf. This is still, and, and that's because he still believes that God is this Eros God, and he's been persecuting him. What's the result of that? He's waiting for the blow of disgust. He's waiting to be crushed, you know, like a cockroach. Here he is. He's the Eros God. I am Saul of Tarsus. 
I am not as other men. And, and now he's flat on his face in the dust. <laughs> but here comes another. I am. I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you persecuted. If you really understand what he's saying, he is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Saul faces agape love, God love, the total reverse of eros. God loves and he forgives the person who has spent his life energy to, 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 to try and, and get rid of them. I am Jesus. Or, or try this one. Hosea looks into the eyes of Gomer and said, I'm Hosea, your husband, your lover. Why are you unfaithful to me? Hear the words, forgive her, for she knows not what she, she does. We're talking the blindness of Eros, the blindness of, of how we approach God, how we believe God, how we look at him, how we live our lives accordingly, living up to, trying to do the best, trying to, in all these things, when we say we love him, I'll, I'll be better next time. I promise I won't do it ever again. God, I, I'm going to lay down my, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll be faithful, God. You don't have to worry about a thing, God. I'll do it. <clears throat> that lasts for about, what, 3.4 minutes? Then we're right back. In that moment, Saul's life was over. And I can't say that strong enough. Everything Saul was, everything Saul believed, every step Saul took, every breath he breathed was in pleasing his God. You know, I read the epistle of Colossians this morning again. And it talks about pleasing God. How do you please God? It talks about, how do you please God? You, you, I don't care what you do, will never please or impress him. You please God by your ability to rest in him, in who he is, in what he says. When I please him, it's I've abandoned myself to him. It's, it's, it's that he works in me both with the desire and the work. He works in me both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not about our doing. It's about our human beings. It's our ability to rest. But the problem with most believers is they have no idea who he is. How can they possibly rest 
It's the only thing they possibly can do because they've distanced, they've separated themselves from him. I mean, that's the eros aspect. You know, I'm, I'm not worthy or whatever you want to call it. And as a result of that, there's no rest. There's struggle. There's terror. And the only thing they look at is maybe, maybe by grace that, you know, if, 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 if I'm good enough, I'll make it to heaven. Jesus didn't die so that you could go to heaven. Jesus died to bring you to the Father. For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Say it again. In this moment, where Saul finds himself, his life is over. The very meaning of life was over. Everything he lived, everything, everything he studied, everything he hoped for was being eradicated. I used to work in, a, in an old grocery store back in the, and stuff like and we used to have what we called pogo sticks. Pogo stick, if you remember, it was a stick, and you would fix the price on that pogo stick, and then you go up to the cans, you go ching, 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 so that the price would be up. Because they didn't have scanners back then. So when you brought your groceries to the counter, to the cashier, she had, and she didn't have an electric, <laughs> you know, she had to punch it in, and then the department from which it was from. So if that price wasn't on the can, there's no way to tell how much the can was. And then we ran into things at the store called price chasers. So we had this little bottle that we used to carry around. It was the smelliest junk of all, but you'd take that bottle out, and they were called eradicators. As soon as you applied it to the can, the ink disappeared. It got wiped out. That's what happened to Saul. Everything he lived for, studied, hoped for, was being wiped out, eradicated. The name of Jesus, all of his life had come to a head in that. And now, he's the one who's been persecuted. I'm going to end it with this, with this statement because I want, I want to pick it up next week. To, to just hit that key point and then bring it into the a core aspect of things. But understand this. His passion had been that he did not rise from the dead, but he died as a criminal. Do you understand that? When Saul viewed Jesus, the passion that Saul had is he, he didn't rise from the dead. He died as a criminal. And that was the zeal that drove him. And now, pretty messed up. So what's next? Where does he go from here? Apparently nothing. You've got Saul.
want to be cursed because otherwise you'd be cursed. But, but can I just can I just say it to us again? When I look at the Pharisees, and you know, kudos for the Pharisees. Do you realize the Pharisees are the ones that are credited with keeping the Holy Scripture during their time of captivity, otherwise it would have been lost? I mean, they're, they're the ones that actually bring it forward, but then there came that pride and that eros God that they, listen, it, I said it before, it changes faces. It, it, it adapts to every situation and circumstance. I, I was sitting down this afternoon with an old youth pastor of his house. Some of you might remember Steve Heskey. And, and we were talking about this very thing. And I come back to it and, and, and I say, you know, because we both look at the house, we both look at the church, and we see a lack of depth, a lack of commitment, a lack of hunger, a lack of growing, a lack of many different things when it comes to the heart of God's people. And I don't say this, my, my heart hurts. I, I can understand the woe aspect of what Jesus was, was doing. But I'll say this again. Many people walk, oh man, I'm going off the deep end here. But many people walk out of church on a Sunday morning no different than when they came in. They go throughout the week no different than when they started the week. They haven't really spoken to God unless they asked him to bless the cheeseburger from McDonald's. And the reality is our concept of God is on a complete mixture of eros. And so after you try for so long, what do you do? Give up. Just stop. It doesn't make any difference. You try to be the better person. You even try to read the Bible as much as you possibly can, but oh, no, I just don't get it, and so you give up on it. Prayer, words don't come because we don't know really how to pray or what to pray as a result of it. It's not that we don't want to pray. It's just that the difference is not made. I can pour my heart out to God in a situation, and it's like nothing ever changes. And then God's no longer the best. No longer the highest. We withdraw. But we still want to go to heaven, of course, obviously, right? We want our mansion just over there here. But you see, what the enemy has come in and done is slander and deceive. Thus, again, the enemy's name is not Satan. The enemy's name is not devil. Okay, Hebrew and Greek. His name is Lucifer. Satan and devil are titles. And titles of slander and deceiving. He slanders you before God and slanders God before you. If God was all that he said he you wouldn't be. The deception 
the deceiving, the eros. You say, God loves you? This is what love looks like? We keep fitting it into the same thing over and over again. That's why I, 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 we bring this. this. This is the whole idea behind what Hosea is speaking of and reflection of what Jesus is and does in the New Testament. And you can see this actualized in a man by the name of Paul. Now that transforms us like the Holy Spirit. We are going to valley of trials through trials into a glorified hope. What does that mean? That's next week. Would you stand with me? Actually, because I've been standing here all this time, I want you to share in my misery. Part of my prayer time is asking God to show me His heart, and and I don't I don't I, I, I share that because that's the ultimate announcement, and I, I've shared with you before how many years ago He showed Himself to me in a way that I would worship him would be as my teacher. I'm going to tell you something, that changes everything. We're scratching the surface on some things, but my hope and my prayer is that through this time of the book of Hosea, that you see differently than you've seen before, which changes everything. Father, thank you for this night. We thank you for your word, your goodness, your loving kindness, surely goodness, and loving kindness will relentlessly pursue you every day of your life. Be blessed, Lord. I pray again that your promises would be upon them as you bless them, favor them, and assure them. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. These altars are open. You're welcome to find a place of prayer. But do me a favor, before you get out of here, turn to somebody and tell them, you are the battery.